So before I start the formal talk, um, uh, is there a volunteer with the mic in the room for mic running now? Yeah, okay, great. Um, okay, so here's what I'd like to speak about tonight. Um, I'll give you a little context, background. Um, and just for my clarity, is there a way to, that we mic the people who are streaming in, or is that not possible yet? Okay, that doesn't happen. Okay, so we'll just have to feel into those of you who are streaming in to get your voice. But um, um, I just came back uh, yesterday from Durango, Colorado, where I was working and teaching all week. And uh, it's beautiful beautiful place to be, very different than where we live, uh, Durango. It's up in the mountains in Colorado, and uh, and uh, we, we had a good time. We were preparing the community Dharma leaders training for the next two years with the core team and some of the assistants, and um, and then we taught a weekend, and the weekend was about love and letting go and the nectar of the Dharma. But the talk tonight, I'm going to talk about all those things, but I thought I would change the name of the talk. I think it should just be Loving the Nectar of the Dharma. Loving the Nectar of the Dharma. And that sounded, that felt really good to me and really a little more poetic. So I'm changing it. It's part of the privilege you have as a teacher. You can change the name of the talk at the last minute. Um, and so I have a question for all of you. And this is why I want the mic runner to be ready to run. Um, which is, what is love? What is love? All right, so I'm asking a very specific question. What is it? What is love? Not what do you love, which we'll go into, but what is love itself? And I expect you each to have an answer to that question. Here, here we go, please. And you might stand up. It'll make it easier for him to see you and then... Yeah. Is it working? Okay, yeah, good. beautiful. When I think of love, I think it is like a way of communicating. Uh-huh. And I always call it the uh, language of the wild. Because all of the plants and all of the wild, when you look at them, and you get this sense of, uh, just whatever you get a sense of, uh-huh. that, to me, is love. The language of the wild. I language, like that. Language of the wild. <laughs> Okay, who else? What is love over here? Um, some A definition of it that I've identified with recently is a willingness to contribute or support your own or someone else's spiritual growth, uh-huh. um, which I appreciated. Uh-huh. So willingness to support your own or somebody else's growth. In other words, it's a motivating force. Would would that work? 
or a motivating power. Yeah, I like that one better too. Okay, mo- motivating power. Over here. No, it's not working. No, she's... No, no. It's a, it looks like the red light is going off and on or something. This is often happens with love. It goes off and on. You know. <laughs> Yeah, let's go. Oh, we do some. Yeah. Oh, now it's on. Okay. It's on. Oh. <laughs> so it's my voice. Oh, rock star. There you Sorry, I think that was me. Um, I think love for me is a deep sense of caring, uh-huh. caring for the well-being of, so related. Um, and a sense of connectedness, not being separate from. Okay, sense of connectedness, not being separate from. I'm just going to keep asking the question, what is love itself? Please. If you could stand. It's on, okay. Yeah. Um, Thank you. In its pure state, it is um, a state of expansiveness and sweetness uh-huh. with no judgment. Uh-huh. State of expansiveness, sweetness, no judgment. Sounds good. Somebody, was there somebody, please? So for me, love is just simply truth and being okay with what that is. Uh-huh. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Uh, that That's a winner. Okay, one more. Uh. Piggybacking off of that, that is love is loving somebody without conditions, so non-conditional, just accepting people without conditions. So acceptance without conditions. Okay. Wait, like, do we got one more and then we're stopping? Yes. Um if I break it down to its constituent parts, I thought of it as the simple act of seeing something as it truly is. Great. Seeing, seeing um, I'll say it in my language, st- seeing things as they are. Right? Okay, beautiful. Okay, let's stop there. I mean, we could keep going and just do this all night, but um, it's such an interesting question about what is it actually, and not just... I mean, we could say what it does, which we're seeing, but what is it that does that? What is love itself? And then, of course, I have a bunch of things people have said about love, and here's one that I'll give you. When scientists look for a unified theory of the universe, when scientists looked, for a unified theory of the universe, they forgot the most powerful unseen force. Love is light that enlivens those who give and receive it. Love is gravity because it makes some people feel attracted to others. Love is power 
because it mu- multiplies the best we have and allows humanity not to be extinguished in their blind selfishness. Love unfolds and reveals. Okay, and that's from a famous Buddhist teacher named Albert Einstein. And I thought that was pretty good, you know, for Albert, you know, a while ago. And so I want you to all reflect a little bit about love, and we will tonight, but also reflect on what happens right where you're sitting as you think about love, right? Because all kinds of things can happen. It can bring up all kinds of ideas and beliefs and feelings, and it can make one feel quite lit up or unhappy, depending on our relationship to love or the circumstances upon which we might have experienced or not experienced love. Because it seems like a very primordial component of the human experience, like that love seems to be, and I'm just, this is my opinion, seems to be um, innate in the human experience for survival. And maybe we can live without any love, but it sure seems to support our life and our aliveness and our well-being. And I like to use that word or that phrase, well-being, because we're human beings. And there's something about love that's related to our beingness, not just our, the fact that we do a lot as humans, but that we're beings. And so you could reflect for a minute about, you know, what do you love and what things do you love or what food do you love or what kind of phone do you love? A lot of people love their phones, you know. (laughs) I mean, it's a very intimate thing all the time. People are like this, right? I assume they're in love with their phone. Or, you know, I grew up in Detroit and I, I love cars, actually. I think cars are just great. It's just amazing you can just drive around and go places you know in this machine and it takes you places and uh, um, we also love places or times in our life we love or experiences that we love we want to repeat them you ever notice that when we love something we want it again It's very common and normal. And of course, we love our... Well, I don't know if this is always true, but generally we love our partners or we love our children or we love our families or we love our communities or we love the people who are part of our culture, right? The tribes that we're part of, whatever they might be. Right? And so there's a certain kind of love that is part of the fabric of reality in, in my observation. 
And I would like you also to reflect not just on what you might love um, um, in, in the conventional sense, but um, what do you love in terms of the Dharma? If anything, maybe, maybe you don't. But I know I myself have a lot of love for the Dharma. And uh, that takes many forms. And what I love in the Dharma also is different particulars, right? So please think or reflect for yourself about, you know, why are you even here if there's not some heartfelt care or love that brings you here? It might not be in the foreground, but my assumption is it's in the background. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be here. I mean, you know, I may be a great teacher, but I'm not that great. And I hope you know that. <laughs> Actually, I'm sure you know that. But, but um, so I have it here. It said dharmically, the love. Do you love freedom? Right? Is that important to your heart? Or do you love the truth, which somebody brought up, which is, right, the word dharma means truth, right? So if you love the dharma, you love the truth. Or if you love coming into alignment with the truth of who and what you are and what's sitting here at its full in its fullness, with, without having to deny or get rid of anything, but also to keep seeing what's actually here that we call being a human being or being alive, what's breathing right now and listening to me and hearing and thinking and all of that is happening actually on its own. And the magic of what's sitting here that you may be able to appreciate or love And it may not be a romantic love, but it may be a dharmic love or the love of being itself. And, yeah, I wrote, love, love, uh, loving the presence of being, the presence of aliveness, the presence of consciousness that even functions for a while in inhabiting this human body. And we don't know what happens after the human body um, dies, you know, ends. That's very normal. It's not a mistake or doing something wrong. I can assure you, you will all succeed in that at some point, right? I've done a lot of work with dying, hospice, etc. And it's just normal. It's part of the deal. And so the love of the truth starts to bring us in harmony with the way things are, which somebody else mentioned. And, you know, the other thing I have here that I wrote down is we love love. Have you noticed that? Right? We love love. We love feeling love or being love. It's just, it's part of the radiance of human potential. And it may be the part of the radiance of all beings. I, I don't know for sure. We, we have a little dog these days, um, meaning to be 
I want to be very precise and accurate and truthful. My wife has a little dog these days. And the the deal when she wanted the dog was, she, she said she wanted a dog. I'm like, I don't want a dog. I had a dog for years in San Francisco. We still live in San Francisco. And I walked the dog, you know, 10,000 times in San Francisco. I'm like, no, I don't want a dog. She wanted a dog. I said, okay, if you get the dog, here's the deal. It's your dog. So we we signed a contract, <laughs> meaning we agreed that it's her dog, which is great because I love the dog, but I don't have to take care of him, <laughs> which is kind of perfect for me. <laughs> But and, and of course, sometimes I do take care of them as needed, but it's not my resp- primary responsibility. And of course, to be really honest, I've learned how to play second fiddle to the dog, right? Because my wife loves the dog. I mean, that's, there's no question about that. And uh, so... Um, one of the questions for all of us to consider as part of 24-7 practice is what blocks our wholeheartedness of being, of being here and caring about what we care about and loving what we love and letting ourselves really uh, enact the Dharma, live the Dharma. Because... What else is there? Everything else, are, everything else is great. I mean, there's all kinds of things I love to do. You know, many of you might know I loved to bike ride for many years, and I still love it, but I'm much more um, uh, careful about it because I had a few bicycle accidents. Um, and uh, but now I love CrossFit, and probably not everybody's so into CrossFit here, but. Anybody do the CrossFit here? And not one. <laughs> what is it? What is it? CrossFit? It's some strange, you know, workout thing. You go to a gym and they tell you what to do, and and it's never the same twice, which I really like about CrossFit. And it's interesting because it's very different than being at Spirit Rock to be a CrossFit. It's a different community and it really expands my knowing of human beings because these people care about CrossFit like you care about the Dharma, right? It's, I mean, some people, I mean, it is their thing and, uh, and I, I love it. It's totally fun. You know, my kind of fun, of course. So love, a few more words about love. Uh, love in Buddhism, love in is part of Buddhism, and it's um, it's most generally recognized in what's called the four divine abodes, the four divine abodes, and the the divine abodes are also known as the four heavenly realms, or the four Brahma Viharas, God God abodes, Brahma meaning God. Um, and the four divine abodes, or Brahma-viharas, which you may all know, which is um, um, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And they're beautiful expressions of the unbound heart, meaning 
their innate qualities that are revealed when we've learned how to let go or when letting go happens may be a better way to say it that when letting go happens there's a radiance of the heart that is part of what's sitting in each seat here and I know you all have felt it when you recognize you love something because it's not it's not it whatever it does it's a state of consciousness that you one knows and it's love and you can't control it right you can't even control who you fall in love with when love happens anybody ever fall in love with the wrong person right is that like yeah like that's totally because it's not a logical component it's something more primordial something more innate that is part of who and what we are and even conventional love is is a surface or one level level of the heart's radiance of love itself which is love is being itself love is a state of being and somebody said this where did I write it? Oh, this was from Christina, which who introduced me, because we were kidding around about what I was talking tonight. So I said to her, well, what, what is love? And she had a great answer, and I've been a teacher long enough, and I know you steal from whoever you can <laughs> if you get a good answer. She said, love is not out there. It's inside me. That's a beautiful understanding. It's a radiance of the heart that is, we all know from our experience of what we've loved. Whatever we love may be outside of us, but the love is right here and radiates. And people feel it when you love them. Even if they don't want you to love them, they feel it, right? You know, that happens too. And so in Buddhism, though, this unbounded heart is talked about in terms of four very interesting components of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity or a sense of balance because it's a heart that's open to the whole world and to everything. Another way it's talked about in Buddhism, and the Buddha used the heart as a metaphor for awakening itself. He often would talk about awakening as the sure heart's release. The sure heart's release. It's such a beautiful phrase, the sure heart's release. And as I interpret it, it's a heart that's let go and open. And it's about a freedom of heart that is possible for all of us. No matter what your history with your heart may have been, that heart potential is sitting right here for all of us. And you may feel it or recognize it in moments, and it's possible to keep realizing it or letting it become real over and over again or more fully or more completely. And so in the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the basic teachings of the Buddha, the basic texts of his, what he taught, he said, it is in this way that we must train ourselves. And remember, meditation is a training 
That's how he understood it. It wasn't the goal isn't to meditate. It's a training to wake us up, to help us wake up. Maybe that's a better way to say it. And so he said, it is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. By liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. So these are the instructions, the teachings of the Buddha about love that there's a certain kind of liberation that comes with love. And what is the liberation of? What are we being liberated from? Anybody know? Dukkha, yeah, that's a good good answer if you're in a Buddhist, of course. Yeah, we're being liberated from Dukkha, but he's pointing very specifically here liberation of the self, of the ego identity, of the usual way we identify. And he didn't say you have to throw away your ego identity or get rid of it. No, he's talking about liberation, letting go of it, not holding on to it. And uh, there's another... um, Somebody else who talked about it in a similar way, who you may know, who was one of my first teacher on my first retreat, Joseph Goldstein, many, many years ago. He says, the expression of emptiness is love. The expression of emptiness is love. Because emptiness means emptiness of self. When there is no self, there is no other. That duality is created by the idea of self, of I, of the ego. When there's no self, there's a unity, a communion. And without the thought, I am loving someone, love becomes a natural expression of that oneness. And so you hear him pointing to the fruit, the nectar of the Dharma, which is this beauty or goodness or freedom of simply being and being what we are, which is an individual body and person, but not separate from any other body or person, actually, that we're all one manifestation of reality that has emerged in this moment and is right here, right? And we're so used to identifying with our particularity, with our separateness, that we often miss the unity that Joseph is pointing at. The communion, right? The communion, I like that word, communion. So, another... Buddhist teacher in whose lineage we practice here, which was Jack Cornfield's teacher, Ajahn Chah said, he said, Buddhism is a religion of the heart. Buddhism is a religion of the heart. Only this, one who practices to develop the heart is one who practices Buddhism. 
Right? And Ajahn Chah, if you learn about him, he's totally outside the box kind of guy. And I like outside the box people. He was really not afraid to be real, which is how one actually wakes up. If we're going to wake up, we need to be real when we're sitting here any time. Have you ever tried to be meditate and not be real about what's happening? Right? Like you keep saying, oh yeah, I'm just mindful of how happy I am. And you're feeling like shit. You ever? It, it doesn't work. You, you can't do that. Oh no, I'm going to be mindful about how peaceful I am when you're angry. Right? No, I'm peaceful. I'm not angry. No, I hate that guy. And, you know, it, it doesn't work. It's essential to be real. And that is the doorway to discovering the depth of who and what we are, not just the surface of who and what we are. And I always feel very careful about saying this because I don't have a problem with the surface because actually, ultimately, surface and depth are one thing and they're not separate. And so we learn to love reality because it's revealing itself every moment, actually. That's part of what I consider part of the nectar of the Dharma, just loving being. Here's a little poem from uh, Mary Oliver, who of course did all her practice, not all, but so much of her practice in nature like the Buddha did. Mary Oliver, she said, to li- she said, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. You must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing that your own life depends upon it. You must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal to hold it against your bones, knowing that your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let go, let it go. That's deep dharma, what she's saying, in my opinion. To love fully, completely, hold it to your bones, knowing you can't hold on to it anyways. Right? Not ultimately. Actually, there's nothing we can hold on to, and this is Eugene's opinion. There's actually nothing we can really hold on to. Our dukkha is trying to hold on to things, but we actually can't hold on to anything. Right? It's all just doing itself, life and death. This moment, right? Have you not- you noticed how the moments are just doing themselves right now? They're just coming and going? Whatever they are, interesting, not interesting, liking, not liking, curious, not curious, it's all just happening on its own. Can we pay attention to the liveness that's here that's happening on its own and that's knowing itself? It was, it was uh, 
fun in Durango because it's really beautiful in Durango. And I mean, you walk out and there's so much space and then all these mountains around. And and uh, and somebody, when, when I was teaching about this, they said they loved nature. And that was one of their great loves. Anybody else here love nature? Is that... That kind of a norm, kind of not for everybody. I mean, I grew up in cities. I wasn't a big nature guy growing up, but I, I kind of like it a lot now. But it took me a while. But um, but I said to the person, the woman, I said, "Oh, it's so great that you love nature because we are nature, right?" What are we if we're not nature, right? We're just like anything else that grows. You know, we may not be as pretty as a tree or as, you know, you know, beautiful as something else, but or or as dramatic as the mountains, but we ourselves are nature. And so I hope you don't forget that. Right? I mean, what else are, are we? We're just one of the things that grows for a while and and then doesn't grow after a while. I think that happens with everything that grows. And so what Mary Oliver pointed to, right, is loving things, love what's mortal, hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, let it go. And it's just being in, in harmony with the way things are. That really we can't hold on to anything. There's nothing we're going to keep. And one of the beauties about coming into harmony with letting go is we start to taste the nectar of the Dharma, the goodness of simply being, of what's already here. And of course, we can always, there's always a lot of ideas why we can't taste that, right? Oh, it's that's not what my life is, or that's not, and it's true, lives are hard. Lives have a lot of dukkha. Mine, too, I have plenty of dukkha. I've known plenty of dukkha in my life. But still, just this moment, you're right here and you're alive. Just that. And that is magical. And that is not going to continue forever. That is just this. And can we be aware of the consciousness that's aware of what's ever happening in your seat, in your heart, in your mind, in your body? Because it's right here, right now. Right? If you're looking for the Dharma, the whole Dharma is sitting in your seat. Whatever I'm saying, it's just pointing at you. It's pointing at what the Buddha pointed at. He said, this is where awakening happens. It's not in the statues. The statues are nice. You know, I like statues. But there's something way more magical here that is listening to me and that is speaking. So, a few thoughts about the nectar. Here's my favorite quote for the last few years from Dogen, who is a Zen master, Dogen. 
He said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened with all things. Right? Then I'm going to translate it a little more. To study the Buddha way is to study the self, right? That's what we're doing even now. Like, it's why I ask you, please practice the whole time you're here, right? In this moment, how are you practicing? Because you're knowing what's ever happening here. You're studying the self, or at least you're aware of the self. We want to study the self so we can be free of the self also. And then, you know, so he said to... to uh, study the self. Study the Buddha ways to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or to let go of the self. To not be so attached to the self. To not be identified with the idea of who and what we are. But being aware of the liveness that's here. That's beneath whatever the particulars are of who and what we are. And we don't have to get rid of who and what we are or denigrate at all who and what we are. It's kind of beautiful the difference of each one of us and all the different particulars that we each bring into the room and yet there's also something more here that we want to be aware of. And so to to study the self is to let go of the self. To let go of the self is to be awakened, same word in Japanese, or intimate with all things right it's the same word you could use awakened or you could use intimate with all things because something happens when our usual sense of self relaxes and then we become permeable to reality because reality is right here and this is it this moment and it's it's so you know, in Eugene's language, fun to just be here because it's everything is right here. Meaning the liveness is right here, right now. The thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the the sights, the sounds, the tastes, it's all alive right now. This is it. And maybe it's just that. It's just those, you know, six simple sense doors, Right? And, but it's alive. And it's magically alive. We don't know why it's alive. I mean, you know, I guess scientists can tell us why, but experientially, that's where the action is in Buddhism. That's where freedom is in Buddhism, Buddhism is, is experiencing ourselves experientially. A liveness that's sitting here, that's thinking and feeling and liking and not liking. And so, so those three lines from Dogen, study the Buddha way is to study the self, to study the self is to let go of the self, to let go of the self is to become intimate with this moment, with all things that are here, right? And then it goes on, it gets more poetic, which I like. He says, when we become intimate with all things, your body and mind as well as the body and minds of others drop away. Right? When we become intimate with all things, your body and mind as well as the body and mind of others will drop away. No trace of enlightenment remains. 
no trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. That's good dharma in my opinion. And so I'll do my little interpretation. When, when we become intimate with all things, even the idea of our body and mind starts to relax. And so we're not just, we're not just aware of what we think of our body and mind, but actually the direct experience of what we call body and mind or being alive. And of course, um, mind and heart are the same word originally in Pali and, and in Sanskrit in, that, in those Asian cultures at that time. So mind and heart is the same thing. They didn't make a difference between heart and mind. It was one thing. You could use either word and you would still actually point to the center of the chest. In, in the culture the Buddha was raised in, the mind wasn't up in the head. It was right here. It was heart and mind. And so, and so, um, and so what he's saying is your body and mind as well as the body and mind of others, we're not seeing ourselves or others as ideas but we're experiencing the aliveness of this and this at the same time, right? Because, I mean, it is one of the privileges of being in my seat is I get to look at you all and I can see you and I can see your eyes and your faces and, you know, and I have my interpretation. So sometimes you're liking it, sometimes you're not or whatever my interpretations are. But it's still, I can see the aliveness that's sitting here that to me is magical. And magical doesn't mean like it's it's Walt Disney. No, it's real. The magic is real. Life is magical because we're alive. And then he goes on to say so beautifully Zen-like and mysterious, he says, no trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly that's that's deep dharma in my opinion I, it makes me happy and I don't even know what it means you know <laughs> I have my but I, but I have a different kind of experiential response that is good and I trust that goodness No trace of an awakening remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. Uh, I looked up the word awake. You know, I like to look up words and see what they actually mean. It comes from the Old English, uh, aweknan, and it means to spring into being. To spring into being. I mean, that's very cool in my opinion, Right? To, to awake is to spring into being. It's the aliveness that's here and we're alive. Mm. So I'm going to stop here. I mean, I could go on and on. I've got a lot more, but but I'd like to hear thoughts, feelings, opinions, responses, liking, not liking, enjoying, didn't enjoy, learned something, didn't learn, questions. And don't be shy. Even if you're shy, don't be shy.
I mean, no, you can be shy, but don't not speak because you're shy. Speak anyways. Here's a, a little plus on the shyness side. One of my friends once wrote in a book, he said, shyness is a harbinger of being coming into the world. Shyness is a harbinger of being coming into the world. That, because something real is coming into the world, and we get shy sometimes about that. So, okay, any thoughts, questions, comments? Please. And of course, I'll just start calling on you. Oh, there we go. If nobody raises their hand, thank you. Please stand up. It's a simple question. What is dukkha? What is dukkha? Dukkha. You ever, have you, is this your first talk? Dharma talk? No, you got to leave the mic with him so we can keep talking if we need to. Um, so you've been to other Dharma talks? Yeah, and I don't remember hearing it. Right, that's okay. I'm not, I'm, uh, so have you ever been to Dharma talk where you have to go to the bathroom and they keep talking for a long time? Right? That's dukkha. <laughs> Got it. Meaning dukkha means dis-ease or uncomfortability or um, an unharmonious experience. It can be as simple as having to go to the bathroom and you can't get out the door or it could be war which is also dukkha, or hatred, or racism, or any of the um, limitations that human beings have in their ignorance, right? And so that can be both, they can be external, the dukkha, it can be internal. Just sometimes my mind is dukkha, right? I think all this stuff that's ridiculous, and that it's dukkha. And so the classic definition of dukkha is suffering. And it's also, yeah, dis-ease is another translation, and stress is a kind of American good, good version of dukkha. Okay, but dukkha is so broad, that's why I like the word. I like to use it. It's just so helpful. Anything else about dukkha? Okay. I'm good, thank you. Okay, here. My Duke of friend. Uh, love is addicting. Could be. That's all I had to say. <laughs> well, can I ask you a question? Yes. Why is it addicting? It becomes uh, needy. Can, but it doesn't have to be. You ever love something that you don't need? Well, I I know I'm addicted to breathing too. Uh huh. So I really I feel like I'm addicted to love as well. Uh huh. Well, I can assure you, you're going to get over your addiction to breathing. <laughs> so maybe you could get over I, your addiction. I've been working to love. on that. Pardon? I've been working on that. One. <laughs> Uh, I don't think you even have to work at it. It'll do itself. <laughs> but but it is, it's an interesting, there is a magnetism with love that we talked about, that even Einstein talked about. But in fact, you know, it's very, you know, here, I'll give you one example. Uh, 
I mean, I've loved lots of things in my life, really, lots. I've been a musician. I loved music for years and years. All I wanted to do was listen and play music, which I did for years. even had a performing space in my house in San Francisco, and it was just great. And I loved, and I still love music, but I'm not addicted to music. I just love music, and, you know, sometimes it's here and sometimes it's not. But meaning it's changed over time. And I may be a little older than you. And I've seen something, especially about aging, is something relaxes that I call the wisdom of aging, really. Because um, you just see, oh, you can't hold on to anything, actually. Even love. And I think I'm younger than you. I think you are. I'm just younger than tomorrow. How old are you? Uh, 68. Yeah, you're a kid. <laughs> Meaning I'm two years older than you. <laughs> but but it is, it's something I've seen from, for myself, I'm not saying for everybody, with aging, is there's something about, oh, you see, everything's just doing itself. It's all happening on its own. And we're actually very, we have very little control, ultimately. And we can have more input, and we do have input, but we don't have control. And, you know, the other example I like to give, because you're not the only person who's ever said this, that love is addicting. Um, You know, I have a daughter who I love totally, very much, and it's really been interesting to be a parent. Um, But uh, the best thing I ever learned in my life was not to hold on to my daughter. And I love her totally, but she has her own life, which is totally separate from me, even though we're family and we're good. I mean, it's not like we have a bad relationship or anything, but I'm not holding on to her at all, really. And I can't. She taught me that at a very young age, (laughs) actually, so... Check it out. Keep looking. Please. Hi. Oh, come on. What the hell? I know you've mentioned it, but um, like with your daughter, but can you talk about love and attachment? Like in real life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can you really love and not have attachment? Or if you're attached, how can you let that go? It, it takes work. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Keep the mic. Maybe we'll talk a little. Come on. You don't have to talk too much. Don't worry. But it's, it's something that's learned over time because the, we all have it. It's a very prime, prime medial kind of response. It's like, I love this person. I want them. Period. You know, it's not even a thought, right? It's very instinctual. And so learning to come to to come to terms with our instincts, right, with which are um, for, we have three basic instincts, it said, the instinct for survival, the instinct for uh, uh, the survival instinct, the social instinct, and the sexual instinct. And they're primitive, and the animals have this. Right, and we're animals, and so not having any judgments about it really helpful. 
because you don't want to judge yourself for that kind of instinctual energy because we all have it. And then to learn how to work with it is part of practice. So to be mindful of it, to see it, to feel it, and see what happens because what is seeing it, what is aware of it, is not bound to it. Feels bound to it. It feels bound to it, or you feel bound to it. I feel bound to it. Right. The awareness is not bound to it. You will, I feel bound to things, no doubt about it. But though, when I'm aware of something, the awareness is not bound to it. I'm pointing at some. This is a very Eugene kind of teaching, but it's a deep teaching, and I, I mean it. So just see, where's the where's what's attached? Because it's me, it's my heart, it's my feelings, it's my wanting, whatever it might be. When I'm attached, but being what's aware of all of that is not bound to anything. But you're still there. <laughs> Yeah, you, you are. And you want to be really kind to yourself. And that's why the compassion is so important because you're suffering, right? That's how you know you're bound, right? And so you want to be really kind to yourself and not judgmental and in the least, even if you want to be free of it. The judgment doesn't help the freedom. Discernment helps the freedom. Not judgment. Not any harshness or meanness to yourself, right? And so part of what actually helps in the letting go is often grief. Because we're hurting when, what we, when we're attached to what we love and it's not there. And so the grief is what we're often judgmental of, like we shouldn't feel that instead of just grieving you know, it's, it's one of the great paradoxes for us as human beings is crying is good for us because something releases on its own. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a conceptual kind of releasing. It's a somatic kinesthetic releasing in sadness and grief and sorrow. And it's why, and I worked as a grief counselor for many years when I was working in the... Um, it's an hospice project. And, and um, everybody thinks, oh, you're supposed to be over it in a week or a month or a year. And that's not how grief works. But, but So if grief is here, we want to be aware of the grief and let the grief do itself while we stay present because it's our presence that frees us. It's the awareness that frees us. Because as I'm suggesting... The awareness is inherently free. None of here, this is the last, this is very Eugene, but I'm going to do it. Um, anybody here not aware right now? Is anybody here not aware? Please raise your hand if you're not aware. Yeah, right. Are you not aware? No, I'm a young man. I'm, are you, well, how do, how, why did you raise your hand? Uh, can you be aware of everything? 
I didn't ask that. I said, are you aware right now? You were aware of what I said. Yeah. That's awareness. Sure. Right? You were aware then, weren't you? I was. Okay. That's all I was asking. The awareness was here and you were you had some idea of what it's supposed to be. And I'm not going with the idea. I'm pointing at what what's actually here. And the awareness is here right now. You're aware of what I'm saying, what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Where is the awareness? And you don't have to answer that, but I'm because I'm saying it to the whole room. Where is the awareness? Where is the awareness that knows we're grieving, or we're angry, or we're happy, or we're sad, or we're whatever? Or whatever, or you know, or you wish that I would stop so we could get out of here already, or whatever it is, right? But the awareness is not bound to anything. We get bound to things. And that's really important, because that's where the dukkha is. Where was my dukkha friend? Yeah, 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 there you are. Yeah, so that's important. We get bound to things. We get attached. We hold on to things. And that's very normal for the ego identity because the ego identity is created. It's not inherent. Right? It's, it comes out of causes and conditions. And when we begin to relax our identification, then we start to discover something about our Buddha nature and the truth of what's here. I think that's a good place to stop if, okay. Great great to be here with you all tonight. I'll just do one very quick sharing of merit so you can meditate or you could relax either way. Just taking a moment to reflect on the good fortune that we all have to be here tonight, to be alive in this moment, and to share the Dharma. Share the Dharma that's come from for the last 2,600 years and is sitting in this room. And this beautiful building which has been given to us by many, many, many people. And this good fortune that we have to share the Dharma and look at our love of the nectar of the Dharma, of the potential for us to be free or wake up or realize our Buddha nature May that good fortune go out in every direction, touching beings in every realm, in every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from dukkha, free from from misunderstanding who and what they are. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May all beings be free.
everybody. Really good to be here with you all. Please be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.